As you watch the screen, your heart begins to beat faster. There's a fluttering in the pit of your stomach. Your throat is dry. Your palms damp. Suddenly a chill runs down your spine. You clutch the person next to you. You tell yourself, it's only a movie. It's only a movie. But sooner or later, it's time to go home. Welcome to Filmstrip. I'm Jay. And I'm Mike. We're here to review Hereditary, starring Tony Collette, Alex Wolfe, Millie Shapiro, Ann Dowd, and Gabriel Byrne. Directed by Ari Aster, released in 2018 on a $10 million budget, grossed over $80 million at the box office, tons of critical acclaim, et cetera, et cetera. Here on our second chapter of Shocktober. And Mike, welcome back to Filmstrip. Glad to have you here. Tell folks about what you got going on with Amateur Tours and uh, what's happening. Yeah, thanks, Jay. Yeah, it's a, it, I always say it every time. It's always a blast to come on and talk movies with you and having you on my show. So, yeah, Amateur Tours, uh, it, it's, I, I'm glad you asked me because um, I guess this will be the first place that I can can announce some plans that I have, um, especially if there's any crossover with the listenership. And if this is the first time you've been hearing it, then, you know, here's some uh, some news to come. So uh, there's been a the, the show has been a little quiet for the last few months, and that's been, you know, I can give a lot of different excuses from just be busy being work, life getting in the way. But um with that being said, I do have a uh, a goal for uh, this might sound weird coming at this time in October, but for next year, uh in 2022, I want to try and release an episode, one episode every week. So I know that's a lofty goal. Uh I've been recording stuff on my own. I got stuff with Brian, uh Jay. I I'm hoping that you can <laughs> be a part of that and make that goal uh come come true, but uh that's kind of what's going on right now is just stockpiling episodes to get that lofty goal of uh of an episode a week in 2022 cuz podcasting is is so much fun and I always feel bad when I to go on hiatuses and whatever, whatever. But um, yeah, that's kind of the goal for right now. But as as far as the show, we talk about everything. You know, we talk about mainstream movies. We talk about uh, not so mainstream movies, maybe some obscure movies. I talk about short films. Uh, we do some D&D in there every now and again. You know, we, we try and cover all gambit of, uh, of film entertainment. And uh, yeah, it's kind of our show. Just a, a little small, independent fun loving uh show so but yeah we appreciate uh yeah you having us absolutely man and uh yeah sure count me in uh, i'm always game to come over and, and chat up uh movies with you all i've done the the every week release thing i can tell you i know how bold that is so i understand generally <laughs> here on film strip you know we record stuff way in advance not this time folks I, i'll sneak peek you this is this, this is getting recorded about a week before it comes out uh, because Shocktober snuck up on us and uh, we had some scheduled move arounds and stuff. So glad you were able to jump in and, and uh, help me out here, Mike, because, uh, boy, this is a this is a big one uh, has been on the request list since it occurred. Um, and I know for sure Ron's wife is a, is a big fan of this. My wife and I saw it uh, as well. But I kind of want your background with not only this movie, but I guess, you know, the whole elevated horror movement in Hollywood, stuff like 
Haunting of Hill House and Get Out and The Witch and you know this Midsummer, lots of those things. So, what's your background with with that and with this movie? Yeah, I'm glad that uh, I definitely want to talk about this so-called elevated horror movement that we're, we're kind of seeing right now. But I'll first start with Hereditary. So my background with Hereditary, um, I, I remember seeing a preview for this when I was a senior in college. And I was actually, I believe I was seeing A Quiet Place, another movie that some may classify as elevated horror. Uh, without going on too big of a tangent, I don't consider that. I think it's a well-crafted movie with a gimmick and I'll just leave it at that. But I remember seeing the trailers for hereditary and being like, Oh, like, Oh, it's, it's like the next omen. You know, I think everyone seeing the trailers was think it was thinking that's the angle of this movie. And I was like, Oh, okay, this is going to be interesting. And then I saw that tagline of it's, it's this generation's the exorcist. And I've seen that tagline on so many movies that did not deserve it. So (laughs) Yeah, I'm sure it's one of those frustrating taglines that you always see on movies. And I'm sure that's especially frustrating for movie buffs where you're like, oh, come on. Like, if you, it's like saying, oh, our like hot wings, our wings are hot. And then you eat them and they're like mild. You know, like for me, it's like if you're going to say they're hot, they better be hot. And if you're going to say that your movie is the next exorcist, then that better be damn scary. So I remember seeing the trailer and I turned to uh, my buddy, Jake Shell, who's been on my show before. And I said, hey, we should see this movie. And, you know, one thing led to another getting caught up in senior thesis, graduating, uh, maybe living up college a little bit, maybe like partying a little too hard at the end of senior year. Uh, I, it just went under my, well, maybe not under my radar. I just didn't get a chance to get to the movie theater. And then I was going, taking classes, getting to nursing school, like final credits and stuff. So I just, you know, it just slipped under. And I think it was a year later when Brian, my brother texted me and he said, have you seen Hereditary? And I said, no, it's, it was on my list, but I'm in nursing school now. And I just didn't get around to it at school. And he, and, and he said, this is, he said, that movie made me and my girlfriend scream and we had to turn it off and i'm pretty sure the the next day i rented the movie and watched it because for a movie for for brian to say that a movie impacted him in such a way that he screamed and it wasn't like she screamed and i screamed wasn't like a chain reaction it was a we both were terrified and i said okay i have to watch this movie and i and i actually if you go back um I guess 2019, that that area, I did an episode focusing on Hereditary, where I did a predictions leading up to it. I stopped the recording and I started the movie where I thought Brian screamed. And I'm sure it's the exact moment where, where, where Jay, I think you're thinking and anyone that's seen the movie, it's the twist. I'll just leave it at that before we get into spoilers. And I did a react. I hit play and I recorded my thoughts up to that point. And then I did a closing thoughts after the movie was over. And I remember thinking, I guess, tipping my hand a little bit that that tagline that this is the exorcist, like the next exorcist of this generation was completely valid. Uh, I, I absolutely love this movie. I think that this is a movie that not many people are talking about and they should be, um, or it's a mixed bag. I think people are talking about it, but not as much as I think it deserves. Um, I think Ari Aster is, um, is hopefully going to be among the, the next greatest directors that we'll talk about in 50 years from now. And that we'll remember his films fondly. 
and be part of like this new movement of uh, what horror can be. So uh, yeah, that's my history with Hereditary. Uh, I guess before we get too far off from the into the elevated horror movement, the topic. Uh, what what is your history, Jay? I, you know, I saw the big stand-up cardboard thing for this outside of one of our local theaters here. My wife and I did, and we're like, huh, I wonder what that is. And like, I didn't see the Exorcist line until sometime later. And I was like, I don't know, that looks kind of like a haunted house movie or something. I don't know. You know, we didn't see a trailer or anything. And, I, you know, we just, it just kind of flew by. You know, it came out. I heard people talking about it. That summer was particularly busy. So I didn't go see it, anything like that. But I heard a lot of people just buzzing about it. And they just kept going like, oh, you got to see this movie. And so when it came on Amazon, uh, we were like, okay, let's let's sit down and watch this one weekend. And we did. And, I, you know, I... I remember gasping at certain moments like, oh, that actually got me. And I, but when it came around to the end, like I was like, where are we going? Because this movie meanders a lot. And we'll talk about that as it gets into it. But I'm watching this and I'm, I realize like I'm, I'm really just sort of drawn to this because I'm watching Tony Collette. And I said it before on the Knives Out review uh, you know, a few weeks ago um, with Anthony from Tis the Podcast that I could watch Tony Collette act the phone book. And and I'll stand by that because I generally do just like her in everything that she does. Uh, but I realized that I was really paying much more attention to her and watching her craft and do acting stuff than I was really investing in what the movie was giving me. And then it ended. And I remember my wife and I looked at each other going like, so that was that, huh? And, you know, I thought, well, okay. And I didn't really like, you know, spontaneously combust over it, but I also didn't have like a strong negative reaction about it either. I thought, ah, eh, okay, that, that was different, smart, not what I expected. Good twist, but, you know, it's a twist I've seen a hundred times. Um, and I started digging around. I was like, is Shyamalan involved in this in some way? And they just didn't want to put his name on it because everything he touches is garbage, you know, now. And I was wrong about that. But, uh, you know, I did, I did come across. Uh, Ari Oster and started reading a lot of people talking about him and oh, his next movie is going to be crazy and all this stuff. And I said, okay. And uh, you know, we'll get, come back to him and maybe, maybe someday we'll talk midsummer and stuff like that. But I, I started noticing there was a, there was a trend of things happening in Hollywood where they started trying to do the quote, classy horror stuff, the, the elevated horror. And that's when we got like the witch, a movie I happen to really like, by the way. Um, and then like get out, which I think is brilliant. I think Jordan Peele's two movies are, are both great. I actually think us is better than get out. Uh, and then I didn't get into Haunting on Hill, of Hill House because I know it's kind of a quasi-remake of some other shorts or whatever, but it's sort of in that same vein of things. And then when they did those It remakes, they certainly put like, it was like, let's put our elevated horror and our Stranger Things nostalgia in a blender. And, you know, we got those and our reviews of those are pretty well documented at this point. Um, more or less work, though, you know, I would say. So I'm, I'm always down for this when Hollywood decides it's okay to have good horror movies again and, like, put real people in them and, you know, g give them something. And it usually takes an outside studio. And so I started reading about A24. I was like, okay, who are these people? You know, what are they doing? And, that you know, they're taking these tours, if you will, Mike, and giving them budgets and access to, you know, big Hollywood actors and stuff like that and, and production and all this and giving them a platform to do things that, you know, they think are a little cutting edge or a little different. And I'm always game for something like that. Um, but as far as hereditary goes, like my first you know response to it was like, Oh, okay. That was a movie, but I didn't really feel strongly about it. And honestly, I I'd only watched it once more before watching it for this review. I went back to it sometime after I'd watched Midsummer. 
And I decided I needed to see this again. And I, I remember going like, okay, now I, now I think I'm picking up on a lot more. And I do think it is a movie that lends itself to multiple watchings, not only because you'll, you know, you see more stuff, but I think you, you just pick up on, you know, more, there's just more there. The more that you, you get into it, it's kind of like reading a book. And the first time you read it, you get the story. And then the next time you really get into a character or so. So that's what I think about this. It was sort of my takeaway from this, but had never thought about reviewing it for film strip. And I was looking for something to do for, for Shocktober here. And I knew we had a good variety going because I had, Starry Eyes, which is kind of an indie horror thing. And I knew we were going to do the new Halloween. And um, I knew Ron was going to do the guest uh, with uh, Mike from uh, Atkins Undisputed. Um, and so I said, well, okay, what can I do? And I came to you with this and you you pitched this to me almost immediately. And I was like, okay, well, if he's as passionate about it, then I'm always game when the guest is like super jazzed about something. So um, it was an interesting experiment to go back to again, because it had been I saw this in the fall of 2018 and I watched it again, you know, after Midsummer came out. So I haven't thought about it since then. So it's been a couple of years. I was, I was thinking about when I first saw it. I, I wish I went back and saw it in a theater because the heightened anxiety that I feel like this movie exhumes would have been just amplified in a movie theater with the perfect sound and all that. But um, I remember thinking, like up at like the first two thirds of the movie is like spectacular. And then once that traditional horror stuff gets in and you're like, ah, it's okay. Like that's like, that's like the more traditional stuff that you're like, ah, like it's not bad. It's okay. But it's, it's all like that family drama that I think is what specifically draws me to this movie because yeah, there's like sprinklings of like traditional horror stuff in those first two thirds but it's all about, you know, the acting of, Al- I think specifically Alex Wolf and Tony Collette of, you know, the cinematography, the, the little sprinklings of details of what the plot is about. You know, I, it's, I think Tony Collette is, you know, going to be the big thing we talk about here. But I think the first two thirds of the movie is like really great. And then it starts to meander, like you said, but, um, but yeah, Ari Aster is definitely a director that I think we we should definitely keep an eye on. Um, have you? So, I, I was gonna I was gonna ask you if you were familiar with anything he did before Hereditary or even after Hereditary. Um, if you'd seen any of his short uh, his short films from AFI, I went and looked him up after I saw Midsummer uh, because I was really curious about this guy and kind of what he had going on, and yeah. I, I, I watched it and I, I specifically, I watched the one, uh, I'm trying to think of the strange thing about the Johnsons oh, or something. That, yeah. I, that, yeah, that yeah. you could do a whole episode on that alone. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, when we do that over in amateur tourism, that might be fun to do, but I, I saw that and I saw part of Munchausen and I thought I, what I saw there was like, I see why a big studio would give this guy, um, the budget to to make a full length feature film like i get it right like he he's definitely got a style and it's it's borrowing from a lot of things but that's okay i mean that you are what your influences are and i didn't have a problem with that and i just sort of i just remember watching it and and thinking okay this this guy is, is clearly, you know, making his way in Hollywood or whatever. And I thought, you know, I'm going to read about this guy. And he's like 42. He's been doing this for 20 years. Nope, he's only in his 30s. Um, so I was like, wow, he really is like one of the young, you know, young guns coming up. And so I, I'm interested in seeing where he goes next. I know his next project is a Joaquin Phoenix thing. 
Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and, Disappointment and Boulevard. Yeah. yeah, it's supposed to be like a multi-year. I don't. I don't know. I. I don't. I don't know anything about them. I knew nothing about this. I knew nothing about Midsummer going into them. And I kind of for for people like this, I'm like, you know what? I think it's better just to walk in cold and just see what it is. You know, like it's almost. It's really a lot of the way I approach Nolan flicks. Uh, mm-hmm. too and we've talked a lot about him is i just kind of like walking in and just letting those wash over me because i know i'm in for something i'm going to enjoy because i'm in the bag for the guy um this um yeah it, ari Oster, i'm real curious to see where he goes next and like i said well maybe we can we can circle around and talk about his shorts but i i was not familiar with him beforehand i went back and, and sought a couple out afterward because i thought it would be an interesting experiment i'm assuming you you've had some background with them yeah so i i looked up the short films after Midsommar. Um, I, I think I saw Hereditary and Midsommar like pretty like closely to one another. So I was like, well, let me see where these things are. Because Brian mentioned the strange things about the Johnsons and he told me the basic plot. And I guess just for the listeners, because what he told me is what made me immediately want to go search this, where strange things about the Johnsons, it's a traditional, um, I guess, suburban family, African-American. However, their um the son has been sexually molesting the father from a very young age and so the the short film takes place when the son is like in his late 20s early 30s and just that dynamic of the relationship and it's such an impactful short film because i think just that tagline you're like what like how how?" it's like they made lolita a movie and I feel like it's the same thing as like, how do they make this a movie or a short film? And uh, I have seen the only, I've seen Bo, I've seen Munchausen, uh, La Vie I've seen, uh, which I liked all, all of those. Uh, the only one I really didn't like was TDF really works. I think that's more uh, in vain of, uh, I actually don't really know how to classify that. I just remember thinking like it was so totally different from whatever he was doing it was it, it kind of reminded me of um of like a college humor type thing and i wouldn't be surprised if they <laughs> produced it um i just remember thinking it was very weird for just being weird sakes like Bo is is very strange but i it's in like a david lynch kind of way um see uh I, and this is a french so i'm but- butchering it like cecil v i think is an interesting character study of this homeless man just giving this like monologue to the uh to the camera and then munchausen is just you know a tragic story of munchausen syndrome which is from yeah. the mother to the son and it was just, and and i think a lot of and and that's where you start to see his uh the themes of his work he loves dealing with tragedy especially family dynamics and, and tragedy affecting families um you see that I, obviously in hereditary and I know he says Midsommar is more it's it's a post-apocalyptic breakup story. I compl- I know he said it. He's the director, he wrote it. I completely disagree with that. I think Midsommar is more about finding families and 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 finding yourself coming from a broken family uh tragedy and finding yourself in a new community and that's you know a, a topic for another day but I, he, there are these themes that are coming in his work that i'm seeing in his shorts and the films that he's made oh no completely i, I think ari Oster is is obsessed with upper crust upper middle class above families and their yeah for lack of a better way of saying it everything you pull out of them in counseling sessions like he l- loves the mental anguish that people go through 
in times of grief specifically, that's kind of his big thing is how do people deal with and process and work through grief uh, at different times. And I think that I mean, particularly this movie is, is hinging upon all of that. And then he likes to layer on the weird stuff as part of it. And I think some of that comes from Lynch. Some of that comes from, you know, the, the era he's grown up in and the, you know, the kind of the, the things that scare him or whatever. I, you can see, like I say, you can see the genesis of some of these ideas in what his two feature films have been so far uh, in those shorts. And it's definitely what this movie's about. I mean, this movie is a heavy drama. Like if you took out all of the demon worship uh, supernatural stuff in this, what you have is a very cold, but very compelling family drama of dealing with grief and and loss, you know, like in some ways, like it's almost like I wonder it would be an editor's exercise to, could you cut up this movie and just make a, you know, a drama out of it? You wouldn't have an ending, I guess, but you would, you'd have to, you know, what you do with that. But um, yeah, I I don't, I don't know that he is definitely obsessed with the family drama as it were in this. And then, in letting actors breathe and do what actors like to do, which is chew dialogue, man. And uh, I've met a lot of them over the last uh, year or so in particular. And it's, it's a neat skill to be able to absorb yourself in a character and to, to run lines and just to find emotion in words and let it come through your face when you don't have a thousand special effects going on around you and stuff like that. And so I don't know. I, I, I find that exercise to be neat. And that's certainly something this movie hinges a lot on too. Yeah. And I think like that theme that you're talking about, like letting actors be actors and, and like really focusing on the story is going into this idea of the elevated horror movement that we've been kind of seeing in the last, uh, I'd say, I, I guess the last seven years or so, I, I'm trying to think of the movie that to me, I feel like sparked it. I mean, obviously you're going to get these outliers here and there from, you know, the seventies, eighties, nineties, early two thousands. But I, for me, just as a past, like just being a movie goer and seeing and being fans of these types of movies, I feel like uh, it was something like it was either the Duke or it follows that kind of started this movement that, or maybe when people started noticing it, when the horror has subtext and obviously films, yeah. films have had, you know, horror films have had the subtext with, um, I think the great horror films that, you know, we still talk about, uh, for some reason, like the thing keeps coming up, you know, the subtext of like the paranoia and not being able to trust people amidst this, this monster movie. Uh, I, I guess I just watched that. And that's just like really the only thing that's coming to me. Well, I mean, but, think about something like silence of the lambs, you oh. know, and, and, and the obsession that we had with the Hannibal electric character for you know decades, um, that falls in that, that, that show Hannibal, is very much elevated horror. It's very horror, but it's very elevated horror. But it all comes from detective stories crossing over with the, you know, the the uh, Michael Myers trope and stuff. Like, what if you took the low rent slasher and you gave it a real classy sheen? You know, like that's what these things try to do. Or if you, you know, the the root of all of it is always the paranormal. Like we're touching the evil, the essence of you know the devil versus God and all of that. Or we're touching into, um, you know, the supernatural in some way, a haunting or something like that. Like, those, I think that's always been around. Like, you go back and watch some of those old 
even some of those old cheesy Vincent Price movies, man. Like, and those are some of my favorites to watch this time of year during October and stuff. They're kind of quaint, but they're also really creepy. Like, there's some messed up stuff going on in the, the original House on Haunted Hill and all that kind of stuff. So I, I, I dig that. I think it's cool. It's fun how Hollywood falls in and out of love with it. And it's hard to ever pinpoint exactly when it started or when it stopped. But we're definitely in a moment when that is getting attention. Those movies are getting acclaim they're being made and it's influencing other stuff because now you see you know uh Candyman got a remake and that is not your you know older brother's Candyman I can tell you that right now that movie's <laughs> got a lot to say um whether you want to hear it or not I mean it's coming for you uh and even that you know that Halloween 2018 before it became the kind of weird action movie it becomes in the third act uh and what this new one looks like it's going to be that movie was saying a lot about a whole lot of trauma, you know, before it it got into doing its horror stuff. So I think we're just we're just in that moment right now where it's, people are doing that. And let's think about it too as a society. It's never been more out, like in our conscience, to deal with your mental issues, particularly after the last year and a half, two years of the pandemic. Like that, we're talking about mental health in a way that is is incredibly healthy. One, but in ways we never have in my lifetime. Yeah, and I and I I love that we're in this elevated horror uh, movement, or if you want to call it that. I I think I was reading some articles about this elevated horror term, and I think there's there's some weird backlash against it because I think I my interpretation was that some might think that it's like this pretentious, like oh, elevated horror. It, it, yeah. It's it's obviously in response to the last three or four decades of just slasher films from i mean obviously evolution but definitely from you know the late 70s 80s 90s early 2000s um i think all this is in response to that where it's just like mindless violence you know the friday the 13th the um the nightmare on elm streets the hostels the saws where it's just what they call quote-unquote torture porn and it's just like gratuitous violence for gratuitous violence sakes but i i love because i feel like horror is that is that avenue that it can reach everyone like every everyone knows that primal idea of fear and i feel like these these the best horror stories are those that can get that subtext across so like what you were mentioning you know get out the the witch you know the lighthouse robert eggers uh jordan peele um i think these directors and these stories are do, uh are doing really great um mike flanagan who did haunting of hill house yeah, hill, yeah. hill house that again that's a whole i was planning on doing an episode on hill house and then i just got lost in the sauce because i just couldn't i didn't know how to talk about it but i mean hill house is is good on its in its own right but i think bly manor is way better and way more coherent and way more focused but um i i think it's great that you know, these can be easily accessible, but it's interesting too, because I feel like you see these elevated horror films is that critics love these movies for the most part. And then audiences are either lukewarm or they don't like it at all. In the case of Hereditary, you know, it's a very mixed bag of, of what average moviegoers think. And I think it's because they saw the trailer they saw, oh, this is going to be the next omen. Let's go in. And they weren't expecting to be bombarded with family tragedy and uh, these heavy themes of families not communicating with each other. And they sit there and like, wait a minute, maybe they just been conditioned over the last 30, 40 years of like, no, this is what horror is. And they're like, wait, I don't know what to think about this now. And I think that that is 
beautiful because it's making people think and question of like what is scary because i think the the middle of the, of the film or maybe not the middle like the big twist where the rug is pulled from the audience's feet that it, it literally makes you question of like well what is like this is scary like watching tony collette act watching alex wolf the the just the relationship of the family like this is real life scary like this is scarier than any ghost that is in paranormal activity or any like or freddy or freddy jason any like mythical monster like this is real life and that's why this is so scary well this happens i think it's a lot of things right now and it's just where we are in society like i said it's we're, we're talking about our mental health and our issues and our trauma more openly than we ever have and i think that's a good thing i, I want to be on record is to say that but what is also done is it has conditioned our audiences to and and why an audience might have a lukewarm reaction to that is you, you go to a movie a lot of times to do what escape and if you go and you're like wait a minute that's just like what i'm dealing with at home or what i had to deal with back in my hometown or this that and you know like it just lands the wrong way at the wrong time you know like it it can be that can be a lot it can be rough you know and that can make it for a for an experience that in a theater you, you walk out and go like eh it's all right, you know, whatever. And and again, I'll, I'll go back to what I said about this movie in the outset. I, I don't think it's one that's meant to be seen once and then just sort of like, okay, that's in my pile now. Like it, I don't think Ari Aster made a movie like that. And that's a that's a gamble because getting people twice in a theater is you know, that's a that's an event thing, like a Marvel thing or something like Star Wars, something like that these days. People just don't do that anymore. And a lot of it now because the you know, the the time between theater and getting it in your home is so much shorter. And it's just only getting shorter and shorter. And I think we've just crossed that bridge now that a lot of people, it, they may not experience something in a the theater until they experience it at home. And you got to hit them right out of the gate. And, you know, it, it depends on what you're in the mood for. And I, I think before we get any further, we, we need to do a quick plot summary. Yeah, I was, I was going to say, as, as yeah. fun as this is, maybe this can be a <laughs> film strip sessions or something like a bonus yeah, plot. Yeah, because we can, we can sit. Yeah, we could sit we, here for another hour just talking about this. But uh, yeah, yeah, yeah we, I, I was going to say, like, yeah, we should let's get into the movie. Yeah, um, let's get I do want to say yeah. before we get into the, the this discussion, I want to echo like every review that I've listened to, watched. Like, I mean, the movie is almost three, three years old, two, two and a half years old. If you haven't seen the movie by now, please go watch the movie, because I think this is a film like the twists and 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 the turns and, and the rug being pulled out from under you, if you haven't seen it, like, please experience it organically. Like this has to be experience. It's, it, this is like the psycho moment. And it's, it's amazing that it hasn't been ruined. Like this isn't a twist that everyone knows about. Like, so if you haven't seen the movie, please go watch the movie. Uh, at least until that, until the part that where the rug gets twi- that's pulled out. And I don't want to give you any more hints because you're gonna know. But yeah, that's just that's my thing. It's just watch the movie if you haven't seen it. Like that's just my plead. Like I'm just please see the movie before because I, I you have to experience this organically. Yeah, because I'm gonna tell you right now. I cut this down as as short as I could get it because I'm cutting to the chase because I figure we're gonna walk through a lot of this stuff anyway. But I'm just gonna tell you here is what actually is going on in Redditary. I want to tell you now what I'm about to read to you and tell you is not exactly how it is presented to you, but it is the ultimate conclusion. And I'm doing it this way so that we can talk about how they get us there. 
Annie Graham, this is Tony Collette's character, her mother Ellen dies and leaves Annie and her family to deal with their strained relationship. When Annie's daughter Charlie is killed in an auto accident where her son Peter was driving, this sends Annie into an emotional tailspin. Annie meets with a woman named Joan who promises she can perform a seance to contact Charlie as she has contacted her dead son the same way. But after this seance, supernatural events begin to haunt the Graham family. And Annie continues to unravel more and more. We learn that Joan and Ellen were actually a part of a cult attempting to summon the demon payment into the body of a male heir in the family. The payment had actually settled into Charlie's body, which is why she presented as such a tomboy all the time, but wasn't satisfied and has then pursued Peter ever since Charlie's death. In fact, it's pretty obvious that the cult and under the direction of payment caused Charlie's death in a roundabout way. Every supernatural occurrence was orchestrated by Ellen, Joan, and the cult. Annie's husband spontaneously combusts during an argument, and Annie herself is briefly possessed before she cuts off her own head with piano wire. Peter witnesses this and jumps out of a window, maybe to his own death, maybe to knock himself out, but either way, it allows Payman to take over his body, and he joins the rest of the cult in Charlie's treehouse, where they bow to worship him as credits roll. And that's the straight through here's what happens this is what this movie is really about how they get us there is an entirely different journey and that's what we're going to spend the next you know little while talking about here and i think the way to do it really rather than plot by plot because this movie it really is just a set of scenes and things is to take it all from tony collette's point of view annie graham because she is our our character in in this movie everyone else services what she is doing in some way or drives her in some way. And I think again, Tony Collette for me is a good entry point for anything because she can play everything and she kind of has. And I, I gotta say watching her and just the little details in the stuff she does, Mike, she's a miniatures artist. So she's constantly creating these dioramas, which flow in and out. Like it's almost like a Kubrick shot of of rooms and then all of a sudden we're in that room and all these things and she's constantly sort of channeling her emotion into that she recreates her daughter's death scene in one of them which is horrendous and all this other stuff everything is sort of into the lens that she lives in this incredibly encapsulated kind of boxed in world by choice we find out because her upbringing, her upbringing was incredibly fraught um, with emotional trauma from her father's death to her brother's suicide, her mother's eccentricities. And we get all of that in that opening piece where she's speaking at her mother's funeral. And she talks about how, like, I didn't have a great relationship with my mother. I didn't even know she knew this many people. You know, there's all these people in the room. And if you're paying attention, what you realize later is all those people are part of the cult. But you don't know that going in and you're just watching this woman kind of deal with, I'm supposed to be sad right now because everything tells me my mother's dead. I should be sad, but I'm not. My kids aren't. My husband surely didn't. I don't really know what to do with this. You know, we get to see her talk about it at a trauma group, too, and how you know weird their relationship was. Remember weird, how strained it was. And I, that's why I say, like, you know, you strip out the supernatural part and you've got a heck of a family drama going on here and tony collette is the gold piece of all of this for me i 
again, I could watch her do this and do these scenes where she has these frantic line dumps over and over again because she just goes in and out of it like turning on a switch. It's it's really cool to watch an actor do that. Yeah, I, yeah, I I can't. This movie doesn't work without her. I don't think I. I mean, yeah, there are very there's a tons of talented actresses, but I don't think like this is her role. You know, it, it's like for me, it's like thinking of uh, like Forrest Gump without Tom Hanks. Like it just wouldn't work because that like, Tom Hanks is that character. And this is uh, Tony Collette plays Annie like to the T. And that's like the, I, there's so many details in this movie that like when you get that second viewing, you start seeing everything. And, you know, I mean, I've, I have my notes, uh, like just plot by plot, which I mean, we won't get into that, but yeah, definitely like this opening, like it just sets the scene and it starts sprinkling from the first five, 10 minutes, you know, we open up with the obituary, uh, setting the tone. I think that's setting the tone for just like death in families immediately. Um, I love the box framing and the diorama, um, both, uh, organically at, of just you know we pan we see uh the first shot of the movie we see the treehouse we pan to the right and we see all her artwork studio and we pan close to the house and it goes into peter's room but even I, I was noticing throughout key moments of this film uh there's always a locked camera like it's a diorama mm-hmm. I, I noticed it specifically after the um the dinner sequence fight uh, where Tony Collette and Alex Wolf just go uh, just mean spirited, like disdain. Oh, that that is like, as somebody who's a big fan of plays, by the way, I felt like I was like, Oh, Ari Ostrom has loved plays because this is the kind of stuff that actors get to do in plays where they just claw each other's eyes out. Like there's yeah, a, there's and- a great scene in, in a play called, um, Oh, but it's, it's the, uh, the last days of Judas Iscariot. And it's um it's all about a trial. It's a long story, but there there's a there's a, a an attorney and Pontius Pilate go at each other in in a couple of scenes that very similar to this, where they are literally clawing each other's eyes out with words. And I I love that. I'm sitting there watching her just spew that at him, and then he just react to it the way that you're supposed to, like just absorbing it softly, dealing with it, instead of yelling back. You know, it's oh it's so neat. It's there's all of that going on. And then you also realize like we're talking about people that are being possessed by a cult like that, that cannot be lost on this either because on, on one hand, like again, you strip away the supernatural part and you could almost laugh at like how ridiculous some of this gets and how overly dramatic it is. But when you lay that, that sheen on it and you've got Colin Stetson's ethereal droning strings and Pavel uh, Porzanelski's uh, is the cinematographer. The way he shoots it, I love that you call out his lock shots because most of the time, what do we want to try to do? We want to swing around everything. There's a few of those shots in this movie, but he didn't really get off into doing that until the third act. Like this movie is mostly locked down until everything becomes unhinged. Yeah. And it, well, the cinema, it really keeps you in that moment. Like you're like the audience is uncomfortable and you can't look away and and I just and I loved like I said those moments of after those key moments like I said after the dinner argument the camera's locked and she just walks away and then and then it's almost like okay she's gonna go paint this now because as we're or she's gonna make a miniature of this because as we see she just starts making miniatures of everything and I and going back to Tony Collette's acting is I I love how 
how she doesn't make much sense. I, I love like one of my favorite moments when she first goes to the grief. Uh, I lost a loved one meeting and they're like, okay, we have a few minutes left. Does anyone else want to share? So she gets there one late and then she sits down, doesn't say a word. And then she like kind of meekly raises her hand and says, Oh, I don't, I don't even know if I want, if I should be here. And then she just un- she just releases and it's word vomit. And some might think that this is just exposition, but I think it's really building the character of Annie of just all this pent up frustration and just like confusion of what to do. And here's where we get the whole idea of, you know, the, the 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 father starved himself because of mental illness. Oh, my my brother hung himself because he blamed my mom because she, she was, was putting, putting voices in, in his head or right. you know, people in him. And she and all, you know, she you know, we had a no contact rule. Like it's literally everything is just spelled out here or just exposition dump. But what's great, I just think the acting sells it because she just goes from uh, like scoffing at the idea of being there to just complete word vomit to these complete strangers and again i'll tell you like that that's the thing about like it's so cool about this i call this like the introvert's horror dream because you don't want to do it you don't want to unburden but when you turn the faucet on (laughs) sometimes you can't turn it off and that's what i felt like she was she just got a few little drips out and then all of a sudden boom here it all came and it's only in retrospect that you realize she lays out the entire movie for you in that moment you know what is going to happen you know everything that is going to happen after that speech. If you go back and listen to it, she foretells all of it. But it's like you say, it's in such a word vomit that you're like, I, is she just unburdening what is going on? I'm I, I'm trying to pick up on this, what's happened, and it's I, it, it goes by subtly, and that's I think that's one of the the hallmarks of the quote elevated horror movement movement is there has to be a lot of subtlety in these things, and I I, I want to say something now I that's a, probably a studio decision to say like it's exorcist for the new generation or whatever. This movie has absolutely nothing to do with the exorcist. The exorcist is about as subtle as a, you know, fort to the face. Like that movie's not <laughs> subtle at all. Like it tells you exactly what it is from the get go with that ominous music. This movie is way more under the, the table, way more trying to get you to do what the group was trying to do for her, right? To get you relaxed. So that you so that you open up the door because that's how the devil wins, right? It's not by bombarding you necessarily. It's by fooling you into thinking that, oh, it's all good, and then the hooks are in. Yeah, there, there there's that. There's this moment, and then there's the other moment. I don't know if it comes before or after the sequence when Charlie's in her room, obviously most affected of this family by the grandmother's death for obvious well, obvious reasons at the end of the movie, but yeah. coming back and seeing this when she says well like what who's gonna take care of me when you die and and it's like it's i think i wrote down these quotes where like in the moment they're just they mean nothing you know you were her favorite only she would feed you she would oh she wished i was a boy um yeah who's going to take care of me who's gonna take care of me oh well i'm gonna take care of you well what happens when you die and is that that you know that clairvoyant you know, I know, like, I sort of know what's going to happen. But in the beginning of the movie, when you don't know what's going going on, it's just, it's so innocuous. You don't know. It's just this, it's this innocent yeah. little thing. Oh, it's just, a, it's a child yeah. who is very affected by this. But then at the end of the movie, it, like, those are the two 
moments where the movie is entirely spelled out. You know that Tony Collette will be dead at the end of this movie, and then we're setting up everything when she just word vomits everything. And that brings me to, to the first question I had, Mike, and I wanted to ask you this, because it's only in retrospect that I've kind of picked up on this now, and, and honestly, after three viewings of this movie, is we know Payment inhabits Charlie, but this time watching it, I got it in my head. I'm like, I don't think Charlie's ever Charlie. I think it's Payman the whole way. And, but it's disappointed that it's in the female host because it wants to be in a male host. Like that's a, the whole thing. Do you, am I reading that wrong? Or is that a, a fair reading of this? Is that there, there is no Charlie. There's only Payman speaking through Charlie's body. Oh, yeah, yeah. No, I always took that. Payman was always inhabiting Charlie, especially, you know, we get those diorama. Well, because we get those later scenes of like the dreams or is it a dream sequence? I take it as a dream sequence when Tony Collette is talking to Peter and says, oh, essentially, like, I wanted to abort you. I wanted to miscarry you. I never wanted to have right. you. And uh, one way or another, you know, went through with the pregnancy because it was meant to be uh, whether the mother was influenced there. But then, you know, she was from pretty it seemed like from conception that the mother was involved and then wanting to breastfeed there's also those details of the um of uh like that that green plant you can see it like mm -hmm. when when uh, at jones when she drinks the uh, the tea and she pulls it out but also when there's a quick shot of the of um of Ellen feeding baby Charlie, the green plant is at the bottom of the bottle. I don't know where that comes in there, but I always took that as like, it's some sort of satanic plant, whatever yeah, like I, connections. Like it, there, I yeah. always thought that payment was, well, it, it was like Rosemary's baby. Like it was all, he was always there. Well, see, I, I took it as this, you know, they have, Charlie has that flashback sequence for us where she walks, you know, out of her house into the field or whatever. And you see grandma in that you know ring of fire or whatever. And again, only this time did I kind of realize I'm like, I think that's where Charlie died, like quote unquote. And when payment got into Charlie, I think that's, you know, the, the latent memories of how did I get in this body again? Like that's when, you know, Chucky did the Ooga Booga speech or whatever. Like, I think that's when that happened. And they were just being told that in subtlety. Now, again, I could be completely wrong about that, but that's my reading of it is we're seeing that because I think at that point, and, and what we have to know is that payment is orchestrating all of this stuff. It can't directly like go, you will do this, but it, it can move enough things around to make what it wants happen. Right. And, and I guess we should call him he, cause it, it, they do personify it as such. And, and, what we're looking at, I think there's payment realizing like, okay, so I got to go to this party. So I got to make sure I get a hold of some nuts. so I can go into anaphylactic shock because that's a Charlie thing. And through that, I can, I can, you know, kill this body off once and for all. And then that way I can, I can be free and I can have Peter. And that's sort of the, the moment when it's deciding that or whatever. I don't know. It's just, it's really creepy to think about the demon now becomes your character and you have to think about that. And, Look, Millie Shapiro gives a gives a a startling performance in the few scenes she is in in this this movie, um, and you can't not see all of the just stuff going on behind those eyes, man. It, it is it is a creep fest. Yeah, I I think I read somewhere, but like like a it was like a behind the scenes thing where Ari Aster asked Alex Wolf and uh, Millie Shapiro to go out in character. Like as brother and sister, and and I think 
Millie Shapiro was just like this awkward, quiet, like not knowing how to interact. And Alex Wolf just played with it and was like, oh, like the, it really got him into character. But it's funny just how they 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 really tried to get into that mindset of like this socially awkward can it's definitely confused kid and then alex wolf who plays peter this like yeah, he's, stoner he's a pop teenager singer, for goodness sakes i mean yeah, <laughs> yeah naked <laughs> brothers band I, I i'm glad you brought that up because i remember watching this first time and thinking like where have i seen this kid you know i mean i saw like jumanji uh into the jungle or welcome to the jungle before but i it never clicked of like who where have i seen this kid and then i was like and then i looked him up and i was like oh my god he's He's the the pop kid, the kid singer, the Naked Brothers band. When I when I was a kid, that was a uh, uh, popular. So I was like, right? oh my god, this is the same guy, and he yes. did phenomenal. I, I love seeing him and in the work he's he's been doing. I, it was just awesome to see. Yeah, well, I mean, it's, it's this whole thing is you know Peter is a very gregarious kind of outgoing. He's definitely popular. He's got the you know the cute girl that gives him the eye and sends him the, you know, sassy texts or whatever. He smokes weed with his buddies. I mean, you know, and he, he's clearly like getting by in school or whatever. He's got a, he's got a pretty good setup at home because I, I don't know if Tony Collette is selling those, uh, any selling those miniatures or whatever, if that's just her frigging hobby because, uh, Steven Gabriel Byrne, the psychiatrist, which frigging Kaiser Soze is your psychiatrist. You better find a new psychiatrist. But I mean, really like that, that is, that is, it's such a neat setup to see because you couldn't have like picked four people, one Tony Collette and Gabriel Burner interesting match together. So you're like, okay, like maybe if I turn my head sideways, I can kind of see this happening. But their two kids look nothing like either one of them. And I kind of think that's the inside joke of Ari Oster here is that neither of these kids look like their parents. It's on purpose, you know? And I don't know. That's just funny. You know, like I, I meet students all the time, you know, the universities I work at. And, and now I'm, I'm at the age now where, you know, I, their parents are my age, essentially, some of them. And I meet them and I'm like, I can see, you know, you're definitely your mother, you know, and all these kind of things like that. And then the number of my coworkers that have small children, toddlers, and you can see their parents features in them. And I'm like, they couldn't have cast this with people who looked more different than the primary actors if they tried. It's it, but I think that's on purpose. I don't think that anything in this movie is done just arbitrarily. Oh, yeah, totally. I completely agree. Everything seems extremely thought out, which it's very much like the cult members. Everything is called is thought out almost to a I, actually no, not almost literally to a T. And uh, it, when and I guess we can talk like when you mentioned it earlier with the with payment, like oh, like the nut allergy, you have to get the nuts. They set it up early in the movie. Um, the moment they said, oh, EpiPen, I was like, okay, that's well, watching the movie. You're like, I mean, this is a conversation. Like I have a shellfish allergy and I just, I just had a vacation at the time of this recording uh, in um, Acadia National Park, Bar Harbor, Maine, where lobsters are galore. So I, me and my girlfriend were talking about, okay, I got my EpiPen. I got it here. You know, we got to disinfect everything. So like, these are real conversations, but in the context of a movie, like, Oh, oh, that that nut allergy is going to come up and boy does it come up again um and that's yeah, check, where check off's nut allergy yeah oh my god yeah real. Ooh, that's for damn sure but and and that was one of the things when i first saw this movie of so the context uh charlie and peter go to a high school party clearly like a high school party not meant for 13 year olds uh, uh annie is insisting insisting that 
um, that that they that they both go that mm-hmm. this is gonna they're gonna meet everyone. Charlie's gonna meet, hang out with ki- other kids, quote unquote. But it's you know seven, sixteen, seventeen, eighteen year old smoking dope, drinking whatever, and she goes anywhere. She doesn't want to be there, and uh, they're making chocolate cake with nuts. Charlie eats the cake, has an anaphylactic shock, get in the car, and they race off. And I guess we'll talk about the scene. And and like you mentioned in the plot summary, (laughs) Peter swerves to, and and he's high from smoking. He's anxiety-induced adrenaline pumping because his sister is literally dying in front of him. And and in that stupor, uh, in these... I, I forget what state this takes place in. It seems like Utah. Oregon. It's, oh, it's, it's oh, Utah. Utah. Yeah, just yeah. these this open state of of blackness. And then there's a deer in the road. He swerves, and her head gets decapitated on a um, on a telephone pole. And we can get to that scene in a second. Let's just talk about this because I feel like what follows after is that one two punch. And this is yeah. the first punch. Just everything is so planned to the point of we're going to put the deer here. He's going to like she's she's going to have the reaction. He's going to come here. He's not. All this is going to happen. He's going to swerve and this will happen. Charlie will die and release from the mortal bounds. And at first that bothered me. But then I was thinking like when you know the movie and you hear these lines of especially from Charlie saying like what happens when you die there and then the seance and stuff like there's definitely some sort of clairvoyance going on that you're like okay this like there's there's literally demons at play here so you like it's not too far-fetched to think like they definitely got a hint that like this is everything is orchestrated everything is predetermined this is going to happen in the exact way it needs to and um and I guess leading up, like that scene in itself is masterful filmmaking. Just oh. everything from the just just the quick setups of this is what's happening, you know, just the nonchalant of the the situation to the slow progressive wheezing of Charlie, and then Charlie walking and saying, "Oh, my throat's getting bigger," and then the slowly the, the slow, you know, the drums picking up, and then the it's just. And it's just building anxiety. And then just the acting of Alex Wolf, just this manic, like, oh, we're, we're almost there, we're almost there. Don't don't worry, Charlie. And then Charlie's just this gasping, wheezing, like, you know, she's clutching her throat, opens the window, sticks her head out just for desperation. And then and then we get the, the literal thud. The rug is ripped out from under the audience. And this is the moment that Brian and his girlfriend screamed and <laughs> Uh, rightly so it hits you it's a gut punch and i think when i first saw it i I audibly gasped because i did because Mm -hmm. you weren't expecting that and then at that point you're like oh my god she's dead where's this what what's going on like you just feel lost you're like you're you're in shock with with uh with peter not i mean not to the level of comatose but you're like i'm lost i don't know what's going on in this movie anymore See, up to that point, I had just started, and I can remember the first time seeing this movie, thinking this. I'm like, going through, like, okay, so how is Charlie the devil? And then, you know, I, I had already decided, like, Charlie's the evil thing. This is clear. So, you know, how's this going to work out and manifest? And then when her head gets knocked off by a telephone pole, I, I did the same thing your brother did. I went, <gasps> you know, like, I was like, whoa, I did not see that coming at all. There's another time I gasped uh, later on when Gabriel Byrne turns into a fire. Um, I, I did not see that happening at that moment. <laughs> and and uh, when, when that goes down, 
but and and this movie's staged to do that because the first 15 minutes or so of this like i don't i mean we got a lot of family drama we got us you know the spewing of at the uh the support group and all this stuff. And we sort of got this, there's clearly tension between mom and Peter and you know, all this other stuff. And then you see this go down and Alex Wolf in this scene. And it's not the only time he gets to do it in the movie. We talked about the dinner scene thing, his face, the, the look of just complete shock. And you know, Mike, you, you work in, in healthcare and have seen this when someone goes into shock, like the, it, it's a strange, weird sense of calm over someone who inside, like they, their whole mind is just firing a billion different directions in a row and they just can't do anything anymore. Just can't, can't think. And what gets me about the scene is you see him and you see him in the car and he won't turn around. He knows he just, he's like, okay, all right. And then he just turns around and he just drives away. And he drives home and he just goes and, you know, you see that head that where they linger on that one a good while. But Tony Collette's guttural just wailing the next morning and we're close on Peter's face the whole time. And he's just not moving at all. I'm, I, I was I was completely thrown off. I'm like, what what's happening here? Like, what is he just in shock? Is he possessed? What's going on? And to be honest with you, you don't know. Like, you don't really know until the movie gets going for a little bit what's happened because it takes its time to let that big act turn sit with you. Yeah. And, and where that first punch is definitely like a Muhammad Ali jab, this second one, when Tony Collette, when you see that face, the face of Peter, and you just hear, "Oh, I'm going out," and you hear the you hear the first door open, you hear the front door open, then you hear it close, and then she walks to the door, the car, like, "Oh my God!" Like she's gonna find the body, like, "Oh my God!" The kid, like Charlie's still back there, and you hear that door open, and then you just hear this, like you said, this guttural, primal scream, and then it cuts to her in her room, just like, "Oh my God, it hurts." I just need, I need to die. And she just starts screaming Charlie's name and the camera just slowly pans to uh, Peter standing outside the bedroom, listening to his mother moan and wail and just scream that I want to die, that I can't handle this. And then we cut to the, the, the amazing, beautifully Corey or not. It's just the framing of an, another, you know, another diorama, uh, diorama of, the, the blocked fixed angle of the uh, the coffin being lowered into the ground. And we are with, literally, we are with Charlie, or at least the body of Charlie, when we see the, the ground underneath. And I'm like, oh my God, like what's going on with this movie? And yeah, and and, and just like Alex Wolf again, kudos with the, that look of shock. You know, I've, I, so I mean, I'm not, a, I, I've, I'm a NICU nurse. I work with preemie babies. I work in a level three NICU. Uh, so we work with some pretty sick kids. We're a big respiratory uh, hospital. And and I've seen that look of shock on some parents, especially when, they're, when their babies are the 24-week, the 28, especially the micro preemies. It's just this look of shock of, that's my baby. And there's wires. There's there's a um, IVs in them, in their hands, in their uh, belly, but like their umbilical stumps. There's, you know, they have a, they're hooked up to either um, an oscillator, like a, like, um, 
or uh, like a breathing ventilator or like on some sort of CPAP or something. And I've seen that look of shock of just like what is happening. We've had some parents uh, faint when they come into the room. And when I see Alex's wolf's Alex Wolf's face as Peter here, I'm like, it, it, he's nailed it. Like that, like that direction paired with the acting, you nailed it. And then we get into this, 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 this uh, beautifully tragic sequence that is definitely echoed in Midsommar, but I don't think like that opening sequence with Midsommar does not top this moment because here we have the context of everything. Midsommar just kind of opens with a tragedy, but this is just you're you're in it and then like you don't know what's going to happen and yeah it, I mean, it really puts you into that moment of as an audience like i don't know where this movie's going but also it's like wow like what next as many people find themselves in these situations of experiencing yeah. extreme tragedy like what next and well, we're and then we're just along for the ride yeah well i mean we follow peter and amy after this where peter you know, obviously rat with guilt. He's reclusive. He's just sort of kind of following inside of himself. He has this, he's trying to smoke weed with his buddies underneath the, you know, bleachers and he starts having the same reaction Charlie did. You realize he's having a stress reaction, you know, and, and because of the guilt and things like that. And then you have that unbelievably great bit of acting again where Tony Collette just unloads on him at, at the dinner table and you, you got Gabriel Byrne trying to stop that from happening and you know, me, mediate between them but he's also you know trying to be calm and you know she goes from just complete 100 miles an hour adding to she's sitting back down she's quiet and she just gets up and walks away and he's just sitting there just sort of absorbed with the fact that you know she she's unloaded on him and he doesn't know what to say because he's trying to get her to say anything because he knows she wants to, you know, unload on him and maybe part of him needs it too. So he can process his own grief and, and stuff. And what I'm saying about that is all this happens and you're going like, I thought this movie is about possession and stuff. And it is, <laughs> but it, it, it takes this 25 minute detour to become this uh, kind of high rent lifetime movie. Uh, because Annie gets a friend and the great Anne Dowd, who I think everyone now knows is a monster from Handmaid's Tale. Yep. Um, but just a just a great character actor and and can play anything. And she's so good in this as uh, the friend because Annie goes to the grief support thing again and she she's getting ready to drive away. She's like, I'm sorry, I can't do this. And Joan runs her down. And she's like, oh, you know, I remember you from months ago. Is everything okay? You know, and, and they they strike it up. And what you think is like she's making a friend. She realizes later is like Joan is is setting the stage for what has to happen next. It's all part of the great plan. It's what makes this movie kind of fun to revisit after you know, right? Is yeah. when can, when do they not know? And you realize why. Because sometimes that, when that happens in a movie, Mike, like you go back and watch like, man, these characters are stupid. Like you should have realized that. Like there's no place at which Annie could have figured this out. Like there's no way she wouldn't know because she didn't have the relationship with her mother to know. Right. So she, she would, she had no idea what was happening. That She was being set up that she's being marked. And it, but we, we go through all of that and we go through the little seance with the chalkboard and the sun and all this. And, and you have to ask yourself on the back end, like, is that even real or is Joan just making that shit up? Because it's what you do to to get the mark reeled in, 
And and part of me is like, you know, I kind of think it is real because in every lie, there's a little bit of truth, right? And it just makes the story better, but maybe not. I don't know. It doesn't matter, but it's it's one of those, it's just one of those things that it, after you've sort of gone through this movie and then when the movie kicks into high gear and the, the back half of the second act and into the third act, that you realize like, man, in those slow moments, they sure did tell us a whole lot. And we just sort of let it wash over us. And that's the unnerving part of this movie is that it knows when to really gear down and tell you a lot, but make you realize you're, you're not realizing I'm telling you everything that's about to happen to these people again. And then you go see it happen the next 30 minutes. Yeah. And, and I love like these, these slow moments too. I mean, especially when you see the deleted scenes, there's so many more like drawn out moments, but there's so much that like the, like what's in the movie are the trimmed down sequences um, like when Tony Collette is sleeping in the, in the tree house, you know, there's this whole thing that Peter couldn't sleep and then he was going to go in the tree house and see her and then fall and like hurt his leg. But, but we don't need any of that. You know, we get these quick glances of Peter not sleeping, Tony Collette's in the, in the tree house and it cuts back. Like we're just cutting back and forth of how distant both these characters are. And what I love about Joan especially with like this whole seance thing is, you know, we have this whole thing with the, um, the male, the shot, the, 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 the square shot of the, the male. And then it's in the, it's in the mailbox. And then someone, you don't see who slips in this pamphlet of a seance being, Oh, we hope that I took this as let's hope they they see this. She'll come and then we'll work the magic there. Oh, she doesn't come. Okay. Joan, now it's your turn. We have, we got to get the seance. We have to have them invite, uh, payment back into the house but you know i just love like it's again those subtle details of okay we're gonna because because that pamphlet is never brought up it's all oh, the seance yeah. it's now it's like okay that plan didn't work joan your turn to go in and set everything in motion like there's always a plan in place or there's always contingencies if something doesn't work and and yeah, and one I have to admit, once like the more traditional stuff starts coming in, as entertaining as like the seance and all the like both seances are, I, I'm that's not what's interesting to me. You know, I thought that the the family drama, you know, Tony Collette and Alex Wolf just going at each other at the dinner table, or her just her just her grief stricken wails. That's what's like scary to me. That's what's interesting to me. This this seance stuff is like okay, like this is what this is what well, I kind of was expecting at this point. I, I I look at that seance bit like the whole seance piece is just to jump in real quick, Mike. I look at that, and I'm like, that's what the classy paranormal activity would have been like. Like if they ever really done one up without just being relying upon noises and jump scares and stuff like that. Like that's that's how to do that. And and make it unnerving and weird because I mean you see you see Peter in that moment like clearly they've repaired some bit of their relationship because he starts calling her mommy and crying and he's just upset and you see like it's also the first time you realize on the, on the back end that Annie's possessed for the first time at that moment and you think she's possessed by Charlie which you realize she's she's possessed by Payman and she's talking out of her head. You know, and, and she's, she's, we think she's talking out of her head. She's saying those words and like Gabriel Burns, like, I don't even know what language that is, you know, and, and they're going back and forth about it. And, and only in retrospect, you realize you've got to say all those words for this to work. So Payman's like, fine, damn it, I'll do it. And he just <laughs> grabs her and uses up enough energy for her to spit out those words. And it, you know, they have to throw water on her to knock her out of it. And 
I like that though. I, I, I hear what you're saying. It's like, that wasn't the, you know, as compelling as some of the family stuff. And I agree with you there, but I think this is, this isn't where the movie loses me when it becomes horror express. I'll say that there's, there's a point when that happens. We'll talk about it when it happens, but this isn't it for me. I'm like, no, I, I'm digging this. And I dig the little subtle bits here too, where she sees, um, Charlie's sketchbook drawing Peter, you know, and all this, and she throws it in the fire and she starts to burn with it, you know, and, and she goes back to Joan's apartment and Joan ain't there, but all of Charlie's like little handmade weird toys are there, which how did that happen? You know, like it starts now we're starting to like put up these big question marks of what the hell is going on in this, you know, movie as everything is starting to unravel and it gets weirder and weirder you know, at school and everything else. Yeah, it's yeah, definitely. It definitely starts to get really bizarre, especially when like the when payment starts becoming more and more powerful, like with those um, like the pulsating lights as those yeah. become more and more frequent. I, I do like that that imagery and how it's like leading Peter. But um, uh, I mean, we and we do get that like that that bit. I, I, I love the line. It's at the dinner t- at the dinner scene when Tony Clutch just screams like, uh, oh, I wrote it down. Uh, where is it? Uh, no one admits anything that they've done. No, you can't take responsibility for anything. But it's like. You know, she can, you know, start screaming that at Peter for not taking responsibility. But there's a lot that she's responsible for that she's not taking responsibility for. Oh, yeah. And- that, that, that confession, you know, when she's talked about like what she would do when, when she has that dream where she's in front of Peter's bed and she's yeah, exactly all the time she with tried the turpentine to and everything yeah, and like that that's stuff. something she's not talking about. And yeah, it's like, it, damn, it, it's it, the pot. What is it? The pot calling the kettle black. Like, right. Yeah. But to actually get to see that manifested, that's really effective. Like normally dream sequences in a horror movie, I'm like, man, that is some cheap shit right there. Like that just pisses me off most of the time because it's it's nothing, you know, it's just there to be weird, you know. But in this case, I think it actually works because it's a story we've heard her tell, and then you see her remanifested in her nightmares, you know, that she's she's telling him, but and you kind of wonder like did they actually have part of this conversation? And then the, like the dark parts that weren't said or what sort of nightmarish about it and coming out because then she wakes up and she starts freaking out some more. That's when she finds the sketchbook and everything. I didn't pick up on the whole bit about like throwing the thing in the fire and it lit her on fire. That That's why she later was begging Stephen Gabriel Byrne to throw the book in the fire. Cause she thought it was going to light her on fire again. Like, I didn't pick up on that until this time. And I'm like, oh, that's why she's insistent that he does it. You know, she needs him to do it. But, oh, it's, you know, again, it conjures up a lot oh. of thoughts about things. You know, what is that what it is? And, you know, you see her figure out that her mother and Joan have known each other forever because she finds, you know, she goes through the old family photo albums and finds Joan and she finds out the stuff about, you know, the Demon King payment and all this. And she starts to, you know, piece together why her mother was so close to Charlie because, you know, they, they wouldn't let Peter near her when he was younger. And so she never had a real relationship with him, but Charlie was grandma's right. You know, and you know why it's like, that was sort of like plan B like, well, we'll stick you in this for right now until we can figure out something better. And, you know, there's also that subtle stuff too, where they, they call the husband about the, desecrated grave and you know that's going to be a big reveal in a bit and it just kind of flies by and you don't know and then he gets a picture in an email about a grave that's dug up and he doesn't know what to do you know and 
when she goes up in that attic, man, and finds the flies and finds the decapitated, like, you know, corpse of her mother, like, I got questions, man. Like, why is it decapitated? What is that supposed to do? Like, I don't understand why that is there. I really don't know why that is there, other than just to be freaky as hell. Yeah, I, 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 well, it's, I think it, maybe it's like some weird trinity of because it, it's like of the generations, you know, Charlie lost her head. Uh, Annie's gun going to lose her head. Maybe it has to complete, I don't know, some bullshit of completing a trinity. I don't <laughs> I know. Guess, you know, yeah, it's it like, I be, get, but, I but guess, Ann Dowd says specifically, we, re- we reject the trinity. So, like, yeah, I, it, it, or maybe, yeah, it's some weird, I don't know. Yeah, you're right. It's, it's weird. Uh, it's definitely, it, maybe it's just for shock. Like when you see like the headless corpses, uh, just bowing down at the end of the movie, like it's definitely <sighs> bizarre. Um, when you're like, oh, like it's definitely shocking. Like, yeah, I say that. Oh, um, yeah, it it is, but it's also it, it is the point in the movie when I'm like, oh, now we have fully pulled this train into crazy town. Like oh, now yeah. we're gonna start doing crazy gory shit because you know not long after that is when Gabriel Byrne is lit completely on fire, and I'm like, that did not see the Spinal Tap drummer ending for definitely, you. Definitely okay. Uh, definitely an interesting. Uh, I think it's a striking image of this movie and i think you know Haman is the uh uh god or demon god whatever of mischief i think so like i think with that context it makes sense because i mean i never i never i didn't really think that tony collette or uh, annie was saying like you have to throw this in the fire because um because i want you to be on fire because she's saying like i'm gonna be burst into flames like whatever and then uh and then and then the book gets thrown and then oh it's reversed he gets just burst in the flames and i love i love tony collette's facial expressions in this movie like i'm glad they didn't get memed because if anyone else did those faces in any other movie you, they'd be like memed do you want to know hell. what she's doing though she's doing shelly duvall from stanley kubrick's the Shining. It's the same face. Go watch yeah, it. It is. The it same. is. I don't know. And I've never, I don't have any behind the scenes on that or whatever, but I, I would almost bet you a dollar to dumb that Ari Oster told her, go watch Shelly Duvall when the, the river of blood's coming out of the elevator. And I want you to do that, but do it Tony Collette style. And because that's what she's doing. I'm sitting there watching it today. And even the music stings, all of that shit. It feels like we just did a, we just did a fast remake of The Shining. Like real quick, right here, like the the bonkers, crazy shit that goes on at the end of that movie, where she's running through the hotel and all that stuff. Like, I feel like that's what happens at the end of this too. Like, it it is a shining, but just in your house. Yeah, and and I love Tony Klepp because she like in this specifically because she is not afraid to look. Um, not like she doesn't do any pretty running, if that makes sense. You know, yeah, no, no, she she like, is not going. She to be is glamorous and committed cry. to this, you know, and and like yeah. you know, like the scenes when she like the dream sequence with her and Peter when they're crying, like she's drooling, like when she when she suddenly gets well, when both of them are suddenly wet, you know, these 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 looks of just sadness and anger and grief and and just like she's drooling at one point because she's crying so hard, and then and then we get to this when her husband just bursts in the flames and it's just look of shock. And then it it just, you know, she's gone, you know, Tony is now in, is in control, you know, uh, 
you know, Danny isn't here, Mrs. Torrance. You know, she is yes. gone at this point. Yeah, she, and, she's totally and, and only personified by the fact that somehow Peter has slept through this madness. And well, no, not we shouldn't say somehow. The poor boy concusses himself on his desk because I guess it's payment that does it. Like he holds his hand up and then it makes him just face plant himself on his desk. Not once, but a couple of times before it finally wakes him up out of the trance he's in. And the way he, Alex Wolf contorts his face, dude, I was like, that's gotta be some makeup or stuff. Nope. That's just him. And I was like, well, that that's pretty good. That's some Jim Carrey level rubber facing that you're doing there. And I was impressed because he, he absolutely smashes his nose into that desk. He he wanted to do that for real. He wanted to do that on a real desk. And Ari Aster was like, no, we're going to make this foam. But he still hurt himself because he just committed to throwing it. It was like a foam desk, but he still just threw yeah. himself into the desk. And I remember seeing that scene specifically in the trailer. And I was like, oh, hmm. like that was like my head turn moment. I was like, oh, what is this movie? When he just smashes his face and just pushes the desk away and is screaming in hysterics. I was like, whoa, what is this movie? And then, yeah, so we get to, I think one of the more, I guess this is a scene that everyone points out of like, look in the background, look in the background. Um, I remember seeing it my first time. I didn't miss it uh, of Tony Collette just hanging on the back. Yeah, doing uh, her Spider-Man routine. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, and doing her, uh, oh, what is it? The Exorcist 3 when she's crawling yes. on the wall. Yes. Uh, it on the ceiling. Exorcist 3. Yes. Um, <laughs> yeah. So, uh, but it, it, it all worked for me. Like, it, it, I guess my TV just sucks because I'm in my apartment. Everything is pretty much for free. So I have this like 15 year old, like, giant tv and i don't have the remote so i can't control the brightness so i was like oh i don't i don't see i know she's there i can't see her though um and i miss like the mo- the mother in the art room in the beginning of the movie because i'm like damn this this screen is dark but um but well, this, I, mo- I never... this movie is dark it is dark in moments and then it does the dean cundy light bulb effect you know in the halloween mask thing you know it 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 shows you what it wants you to see in the background while you're paying attention to the foreground cuz like i said peter wakes up and finds his father's burnt corpse on the ground i mean they linger on this stuff for long shots and you just watching again you're watching that trauma fall over him because what we have realized too is that and Gabriel Byrne doesn't get enough credit for the performance he gives in this movie. It's incredibly subtle. Gabriel Byrne is not a subtle performer. <laughs> it's not <laughs> what he does. And he has a couple of moments where he kind of loses his shit and it's like, oh, there's Gabriel Byrne. But, you know, you can tell they really reeled him in. But you can tell that the two of them, like the characters, Stephen and Peter, are very close. And Peter is realizing at that moment, I am so screwed now. I, you know, like I can't even begin to think how screwed I am. And then my mother's being exorcist Spider-Man behind me. And it is, I mean, it is creepy, but she chases him up into that attic. And it's a great chase. And you hear this banging on the, on the attic door. And what I love about the way this scene goes is, is he's, you know, he's doing everything she's asked, right? He's saying he's sorry. He's like, please stop, you know? And you think she's banging with her fist. No, she is headbutting the frigging door. It is nuts. Yeah, creepy image because it's just so unnatural and it's so quick and it's just banging your head against the door and you're like, oh, my God. And then at one point you hear uh, the piano and some people were like, oh, it's just a, it's it, some people might say, oh, it's just a creepy noise in the back. No, she is ripping out 
uh, a piano uh, uh, piano wire to cut her own head off later on. Uh, like you, and it's like so unique that you can hear that. Um, what is that? Diegetically, is that the word? Where it's like it's like incorporated into the scene. Yeah. It's not just a yeah. It, it's it's a, not just it, a sting. It's like it's a it's an unsettling sound because it's happening. It's actually using the real thing to score it with. It's very it's it's very organic. It's it's very much what like if you're watching the original Texas Chainsaw Massacre and you see all of those dangling things on the you know, the porch or those bones and stuff. And the music sounds like somebody banging pots and pans and bones together, you know, it's stuff like that. I mean, it's just supposed to match itself. It's, it, it's, it's a great technique. It is though. Like I realized like, okay, this movie decided all of a sudden, now we're going to turn the crazy town dial all the way to 11. Yeah. 12. And, and I'm like, <laughs> okay, as cool as it is, I'm also realizing like, I didn't think we were going to go where this movie takes us in the next five minutes. And it's particularly when Annie garrots herself with that piano wire and saws her own friggin' head off that I was like, I mean, the the amount of blood and all the stuff that's going on with it. I was like, I didn't, I didn't think we were going to get that in this kind of movie. Like we've seen a corpse and I did see a beheading earlier and a lot of flies and all that, you know, that gross ants crawling around all that stuff. But all that felt really like it, it's real. Like that would be how that would go. Right. You know, like you can imagine that. The, I I cannot imagine anyone in a state enough to be able to saw their own head off with a piano, the B major piano wire or whatever she's got there. Like I, that took me into a different place and not one of like, Oh, utter shock and horror because I guess twice in this movie, it's when Charlie hits the telephone pole and when Steven bursts into flame. And at this point I'm going, what is happening? Like, how did we get from where we started this two hours ago to this? Like, I feel like it just jumped so far ahead. And I don't know. It's just so weird. But I love Peter's response to this. It's the same as the girl in Texas Chainsaw Massacre and in uh, also the lead character in Halloween 6. F it. I'm jumping out the window. Yeah. Give me the hell out. <laughs> and, and that's when he sees the naked people in the attic. Yeah, yeah, that's ah, what making old people too. I'm like, oh, I'm done. That's it. And jumps. He, yeah, he, no hesitation, jumps out the window. It's the closest exit. And he just jumps out of a three, four story house, which I was like, oh, okay, what's going on here? And then we get the slow pan in. We see that pulsating light and he just gets up and mm. we get the last sequence, which I, I yeah, I like. When, when Tony Collette's headless body floats across the screen into the treehouse. It's like the witch almost. So you're yes, like, I, what I is like, going on? That is not where I thought we were going today, sir. It's <laughs> like, this is not ending nearly as weirdly as I thought it was. And when we get up there, we've got the, you know, mostly naked people. Um, and I, and I, I don't know. That, I'm sure Ann Dab was like, nah, I ain't doing that. So it's like, nope, I'll have on the white gown. Nope, thank you very much. Uh, but she's up there. You've got you know grandma's headless body eating up with maggots we get a good shot of that which is gross but it's there you've got tony collette's headless body Annie's there now all the other people and if you, if you look there's several like close-ups on faces if you've paid attention they were all at the funeral you know that there were people you've seen before in the background and, they're waving yeah. yeah and and you see one of like a life-size version of one of charlie's toys that she used to create like these little stickman things right and you realize it's payment it's a it's a, one of his figures but the head of it is a her like apple head. 
And I was like, I, the first time I saw this movie, I was like, that's weird. What the hell is that? It was the second time I watched it. I was like, oh, wait a minute. That's Charlie. Oh, that is. Oh, I didn't think we were going there. And, and she, well, she has the crown on and yeah. it's, um, it's very reminiscent. Well, there's a drawing of a pigeon head yeah. and she, and, and earlier when she cut the head off the bird, that's what she was making. So now it's like, oh, it's all come together. Like she's, well, I don't yeah. want to say she's the bird, but it's like, that's her head. She's got the crown. And then this is when, oh, you're payment. You're the God of whatever. It, it, yes, when they put crown. the crown on his head and we're here to worship you and all this stuff. And, and it ends with everybody bowing down with that droning, like Peter perfect. Payment. Yeah. Like, brrr, like, oh my, like, it's like, oh man, it's like so fantastical. And, like uh, epic well, it, in this, but in this moment, <laughs> but it's whiplashing because again, this has been this tight knit drama that is and and mystery that has poured out in front of us for the last fifteen minutes to just go full on batshit insane. Oh yeah, this, <laughs> is, a, this is a swerve. Like yeah. what happened to Charlie is like we thought we were going right and we took a hard left. This is like we we're skidding out, we're swerving all over the place. But yeah. I'm going with it, I guess, because I felt like I I guess I felt like the movie for me earned everything, and I guess I I do go with like absurdist, like really it, abstract stuff that I'm like whatever. It's very, I'm it's, here. <laughs> it's very much reminiscent of the end of the original Rosemary's Baby. Have you ever seen that? Yep. Yep. Yeah. And just You're like, the, oh shit, <laughs> just the insane like way that movie ends. It's very much like that. I was like, Ari Oster's got to be a big fan of Rosemary's Baby. And sure enough, I looked it up and I was like, oh yeah, that's one of his favorites. I'm like, you can see it. Like it's there. It's just not as, um, that movie doesn't necessarily go crazy. Though, I don't know though. We do get like sequences of, you know, burning Satan, you know, laying on top of Mia Farrow. So, you know, that for its time, I'm sure that was, Equivalent to Tony Collette cutting her head off with piano wire. Um, yeah, I, I'm not saying I'm not going with it, Mike. I'm just surprised it went there. Like I did not think that's what we were going to do in this movie, but we we did. It's like going from okay, I'll give you one. You know, the Silence of the Lambs. We referenced that earlier, right? Elevated mm-hmm. horror movie, probably one of the greatest celebrated horror movies of all time. If you want to call it that, the Academy won't, but all horror fans always have, right? And that movie has a turn in it, though, when Hannibal escapes from uh, his temporary cell when they've got him in the museum or whatever. And you go in and you see the carnage and it's just a couple of shots. But it's like, oh, shit, I didn't think we were going there today. You know, <laughs> and I mean, we're in a movie about a guy who skins people. All right. But we hadn't seen that yet. And then it goes there. It feels very much like that. It's like this. It, you use the right word. It's epic. It's like, wow, what an epic crescendo that I did not think we were going to get. But. It, it leaves us there. And it's, I mean, you talk about leaving on a down note, the devil wins. The, yeah, the devil wins. The, the Antichrist <laughs> has been born. And I, and I, but I do love the final shot of like that diet. It just, it's just like, it's just the attic room. The edges are all black. It's, it's another diorama, but who's going to make this one? You know, it just goes back right. to that theme of just like, you know, we're, we're moved. Where it, it what how did she describe the um she described when she was making the car accident oh it's a neutral view of the accident like right. that's almost like what we're at here it's it's like this downer of a, of a beat to end on like 
everyone's dead the this this demon is reincarnated into exactly who he wants to be and we are just this neutral view watching from afar watching them literally bow down and saying you know hail Payman. um yeah and I, i'm like wow what an ending <laughs> it, it it it's not what i expect it's not it's not my dark side of the moon pink floyd great gig in the sky you know, like that, that's uplifting and kind of leaves you feeling hopeful about life. It's much more like Division Bell's High Hopes, where it's like, oh, it's all, it's all dead. It's all, it's all screwed. <laughs> we screwed it all up. <laughs> and I was like, oh, wow. I mean, yeah, it definitely feels in that same vein. So, well, Mike, I think we're at the point of the podcast where it's time to give our final thoughts, recommendations, and popcorn ratings. So, what are yours for Hereditary? Yeah, so if it if it isn't obvious, I I really enjoy this movie. Um, I think Ari Aster is among the new young directors that will breathe a new sense of uh, life into cinema. You know, Ari Aster, Robert Eggers, uh, Barry Jenkins, uh, Jordan Peele. Dare I say, Damien Chazelle? Like those guys. These the I mean, and a few of those aren't even horror, but you know, these new directors that you know, will be the new, maybe not Spielberg, like, you know, the terms of blockbuster, but just, you know, the Coppola's, the Lucas's, the Spielberg's, just, you know, pushing the bounds of cinema and, you know, hopefully creating new movements that, you know, we can witness and be a part of that, you know, gives us, you know, better stories and better movies that anyone can enjoy. Like, you know, this isn't hereditary as much as, you know, a Rotten Tomatoes score Metacritic might say that the audience didn't like it. I think this is a movie that is accessible to anyone. You know, this is this is a movie that I think it, it can be really empathetic towards. This isn't like The Lighthouse where it's like, what is going on? You know, this is a pretty straightforward A24 horror film, which A24 has some really uh, obscure stuff. But this is a really accessible one. I think this is a film that people should be talking about should be seeing and even if they're just using it as a jumping point to get into different types of horror or different types of narratives um yeah i love the details of the screenplay of the direction i think it's a great debut film um yeah one day we'll we can talk about midsummer as a sophomore effort but i i'm i'm very interested to see what more this director ari aster can do um yeah so i would give hereditary uh, a large popcorn um not necessarily an extra large because it does the swerve that we go at the end of the movie is a little jarring, um, but it's definitely not a medium. Like I, I like I want a large popcorn because I don't want to move from my seat when I'm seeing this in a movie theater. So yeah, large popcorn and the recommend good, great recommendation. Yeah, I'll say this about being accessible. I, I think it is. It's more accessible than Midsommar is because that's just such a. Uh, we'll get to that one one day. We'll have. To, I'll, I'll come over on your show. We'll do the the second part of our amateur tours to talk about that one because that one certainly is a a different length of things. I'm gonna go with my Pink Floyd comparisons a little bit more for this uh, to to sum it up. Hereditary is very much like Dark Side of the Moon. Uh, in that there's something there for everyone. It doesn't end with great gig in this guy. It doesn't even end with Eclipse, which is a pretty good upbeat. It's much more like if you stuck high hopes from Division Bell at the end of it to get there. But it's the same thing. Like you realize you're going on a very ethereal, well thought out, incredibly well crafted trip. Um, and you can get a lot from it through one pass and you get more the more you pass through it and the more you let it kind of wash over you. This movie and Ari Oster's movies, both of them that I've seen and, and the shorts I've seen too, 
kind of wash over you about like a Floyd record does. You know, sometimes it's echoes and you got the dog barking in the background and you don't know what the hell they're doing. And then sometimes it's pretty straightforward what's going on. Um, this movie is totally saved by the fact that you got actors in it that could pull off what they're doing. And you got, I mean, you got one playing totally against type. Gabriel Byrne not being an insane person and yelling and screaming at the screen for the entire time he's on there. Being the subtle one is funny to me. Like that is, that is some subversive humor that we're pulling off. He has the one scene in the seance where he starts losing his mind. But other than that, he doesn't do any Gabriel Byrne stuff. Um, Alex Wolf and Tony Collette though are so good, are so good in this. And again, I would watch the two of them do a play together because I think they, they could really work off of each other. Well, um, the, the cinematography in this is great. The music's well-placed. It all works. That third, that last turn where it just goes insane of territory takes me aside and makes me just go, I, I just cocked my head to the side of it and going like, I just didn't see that coming. But maybe that's the charm of the movie is that it, it wasn't what I expected. And at no turn did it ever give me exactly what I expected, even when it did obvious stuff that you knew it was going to do. So I give it credit for that. And it did make me very interested in Ari Oster and wanted to know what he's going to do next and where he's going to go. And, you know, the one thing I love about these elevated horror movies, particularly like this one, man, like I don't, there is no sequel and I don't want one. Like, it's okay. I'm glad there's not a franchise of this. because I, I don't know if it could get any more dour than the way they ended here, but it's a strong flick. It's definitely worth seeing for sure. Uh, even if this isn't necessarily your bag, I think this is definitely one to see. And I'm going to give it a large popcorn as well. More or less, it, it works. But I want to be very clear. If if you had less competent performers in these roles, as good as Ari Oster is as a director, and I think he's very talented. I agree with you there. I don't think it works as well. I, I think it's the combo of this cast. Re, they really hit it out of the park casting this. So kudos on that and large popcorn for Hereditary. Mike, thanks again for coming on this episode of Filmstrip, uh, hanging out here with us in Shocktober, talking about Hereditary. Tell folks again how they can follow you and follow what's going on and coming up for amateur tours. Oh, yeah, yeah, of course. It, I, always a blast. Always a blast. Time flies when we talk movies, man. Um, yeah, you can follow us uh, on Twitter at AutoursPod, and um, you can email us with any questions, comments, or concerns at theamateuraltoursepodcast.gmail.com. Oh, uh, yeah, you can find us on iTunes, uh, we're on SoundCloud, you know, working on getting on anywhere really that um, podcasts are found. Still working on that, but, you know, that that might be more of a uh, 2022 goal, but we'll get there. But yeah, uh, I'll tourist pod on Twitter and uh, our email. We're always, always love fan interaction or just any interaction at all. But yeah, thanks again, man. It's, it's always a blast. I'm glad to help out. Yeah, absolutely. Mike, always fun to have you here. And we'll, and we'll definitely have you on again after the first of the year. Cause you and I have another date with a musical, my friend, because I saw the trailer to Spielberg's West side story and I got words. <laughs> I got thoughts. And oh gonna, man. Wait, has a trailer come out? I, yes, I when saw did it, it come out. I saw it in front of Dear Evan Hansen, which uh, Irene and I reviewed a, a, while, a couple oh, man, weeks ago. I haven't seen, I haven't seen this trailer. Yeah, I, I, uh -oh. I cut out my comments <laughs> from the show, but just to pull, pull it back behind the scenes, she and I both saw that trailer and we're like, oh, I got thoughts. Ruh -ruh. <laughs> so, so, yeah, so I'm curious. Uh, we'll, we'll see. We'll have to get around to that one. That, that'll be a fun lighter tour back and then look forward to being on amateur tours as always. Folks, thanks again for joining us on this episode of Filmstrip. You can find 
all the links to how you can keep up with the show at filmstrippodcast.com. It'll take you to our big link tree. And uh, if you go to um, from there, you can find all the places you can find the podcast from Apple, Google, Spotify. Leave us a positive review, share the show, and follow us on our social media at filmstrippod on Twitter and Instagram. We appreciate the support. Until next time, for Mike, I'm Jay. Thank you for listening to Filmstrip. Thank you for listening to Filmstrip. You can find more episodes on our website, filmstrippodcast.com. The Filmstrip theme music is produced and performed by Frozen Lake 121. All content used or discussed in these podcast episodes is the property of the respective owners and used under the Fair Use Act, Section 504C2, Title 17.